This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge with you for The Philosopher's Zone once again. Welcome to the program. There's a lot of injustice in the world today, and while some of it is the result of bad people doing bad stuff, a lot of it is what we call structural injustice. It's the result of perfectly well-meaning people living their lives in ways that are ethically justifiable at the micro level, but at the macro level, they contribute to widespread human misery. Critical race theory is a good example of a discourse that addresses structural injustice. It points out that individual people can contribute to racial injustice in ways that may have nothing to do with their actual views on race. The problem lies with social structures that disadvantage people of colour and in which we are all actors. Critical race theory is also a good example of how attempts to remedy structural injustice can be met with fierce resistance from bad faith actors who have a vested interest in the maintenance of those unjust social structures. But what gets tricky is that if each of us is an individual, then if we care about structural injustice, it's not immediately clear where our responsibility as individuals lies or what any one of us can do about it. Well, I'm talking about all of this today with Robin Zhang. She's an assistant professor in philosophy at Yale NUS College in Singapore. For me, I think the easiest way to think about it is it's a kind of harm or inequality or problem, something that shouldn't exist, which is not best explained by appealing to some individual's bad action or bad attitude. So um, to take an example that's quite important here in the U.S., we can think about racial segregation in housing. So you have black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods, and um, this leads to all sorts of inequalities down the line between different racial groups. So, of course, we could explain some of this in terms of individual, you know, real estate agents or landlords who maybe are violating racial discrimination laws or who have racist attitudes and are kind of refusing to rent to people of color. Um, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. It surely does do. But the point of calling it a structural injustice is to say that that's not the whole story. So some racial segregation may be caused just by, you know, parents who are really well-intentioned and they want the best schools for their kids. And so they all go to this one place uh, and, you know, they drive up the prices and that makes it harder for people of color to move in. Um, Or it could even be people of color themselves who want to live around other uh, people of the same racial group. And so they don't want to move to a neighborhood where they're going to be, you know, the one uh, non-white family on the block. So all of that is going into this. And so we could just say that even, or we can we can know that even if no one had any racial biases, there would still be this entire system that perpetuates this kind of racial segregation and all the inequalities that follow. So it has to do with the way that neighborhood taxes are collected so that a rich neighborhood will have a very good school and a poor one won't. And even just a a really tight economy that is so competitive these days that, you know, getting your kids into the right preschool can affect their life chances down the road. So all of these things go into it. And that's what we mean, or most people, I think, mean when they say that something is a structural injustice. 
That means it's a whole interlocking system of social, political, economic, cultural forces that make it so that these inequalities and harms are perpetuated sometimes through the actions of just ordinary, decent people who aren't even really doing anything wrong and who don't at all intend to have this effect of reinforcing inequalities or harms. And you're working with, um, or, or in some sense adding to, a, a very influential model of social responsibility that was developed by the uh, American political theorist Iris Marion Young. It's known as the social connection model. Tell me about that. Yeah. So the social connection model was developed to, so if you have this idea of structural injustices, there's a question of how can, you know, any one of us be responsible for this whole system, which is so, you know, beyond the control of any single one of us. And, um, you know, think of those examples that we were talking about earlier. Um, you might have, you know, a, a racist landlord, but you might just have, you know, totally well-intentioned parents who um, are contributing to, you know, homelessness and racial segregation. So it doesn't seem right to blame people for actions that they take that seem to totally make sense within the way the system is set up. So what Young is trying to do with this social connection model is give us a completely different concept and way of thinking about responsibility. Um, so on the traditional view of responsibility, um, when you are held responsible for something, that means that we could blame you or we could punish you. And Young says that, look, that just doesn't work when it comes to these cases of structural injustice. Um, it's not fair. It's not really possible to... Uh, identify how a specific person is harmed by a specific action that is performed by somebody else, because it's like you said, it's sort of all these different people acting together and cumulative, cumulatively somebody or some group gets harmed. So instead, she says, well, when we say that you're responsible for injustice, we're saying something really different from blame and punishment. Instead, we're saying that you it's right and appropriate for you to be assigned some of the burdens of working to change this unjust system. And it's a burden that you share together with others um, and not something that you're expected to do all by yourself. So that social connection model is getting at the way that there are all of these social connections um, that all of us, we're, we're connected in these various ways such that we produce these harms but then also, also all of us can draw on those connections and together we could collectively change the system so it doesn't lead to these uh, unjust outcomes anymore. And so where is the liberal autonomous subject in all of this, that, uh, that wonderful figure? Ha has that figure sort of faded from the picture in terms of ethical significance? Yeah, so that picture gets very much problematized on this view. Um, and in fact, this view is a way of sort of challenging the very existence of that kind of a figure who, you know, has total control over the consequences of their own actions. And so whatever happens, whether good or bad, they, they deserve it based on the choices they make. Because on this picture, all those choices that you make, um, the choices, the, the options that you're even choosing from, those have already been strongly shaped by these social structures and the many choices that everyone else is making. So I think that this picture is one in which the liberal autonomous subject, it's not that it disappears altogether. Um, so there are still 
parts of our lives that we do have control over. So, you know, if you lie to a friend or you break a promise or something, that is something that can still uh, get captured by this idea of choices. And, you know, you can be blameworthy for that. But the picture just says that, look, this is very limited. And there's a lot of stuff that happens in moral and political life, um, which doesn't get well captured by this idea. And so even though, um, I mean, I think it, there's still something very valuable that is captured by the liberal autonomous subject. So it leads us to see this thing, which is really wonderful and amazing about human agents, which is that we um, are capable of exercising our free will and making choices that are not determined for us. Um, I mean, we don't have to go into the whole free will debate to talk about whether we really have it, but we have enough of free will that we can talk about us being different from, you know, plants and animals and things like that in certain ways. So it does still tell us something valuable about ourselves, but it is quite limited. And I, I don't think it is much use of thinking about these big, large-scale problems in the way that Young's model is is much better suited for. I can see the uh, advantage, if you like, in acknowledging that individual agents have extremely limited power in pushing back against certain forms of injustice. And, you know, that the way that the way that structural injustice sort of expands the scope of objects of moral responsibility. But then on the other hand, you could say that if structures are responsible for injustice, and that's a bit like saying society is responsible, which effectively means nobody's responsible. Mm, mm-hmm. That would sort of be one way of going. Um, what Young is doing and what I think is the right way to do is to actually go in the other direction and say everybody is responsible rather than nobody is responsible. And in my own view, uh, which is kind of, you could think of it as either an elaboration of or an alternative to Young's view, um, I think that one thing that's really important to remember and one thing that I do in terms of social roles is that at the end of the day, structures are still produced by the actions of of individuals. So if there were no human beings around, there wouldn't be any social structures. And if we just, you know, if tomorrow all of us just stopped going to work um, and stopped buying things and stopped driving in cars or, or whatever it is, then we wouldn't have these social structures anymore. So to say that it's caused by social structures is still a, a kind of roundabout way of talking about the way that individual people and their choices, when it's um, connected up with all the choices of everyone else, that that's how things get brought about. So I don't think that it's right to say that nobody is responsible, because it is still our actions in the world that are producing these effects. And I guess that it's helpful also to remember the the distinction that Iris Marion Young draws and, and that you draw, that difference between responsibility as blame or liability and then responsibility as um, what you might call accountability, right? Yeah. So the distinction as I present it is in terms of what I call responsibility as attributability and responsibility as accountability. And there are different interpretations of this distinction. It's been used in different ways by different people. Um, But the way that I think it's most useful to think about it is that they come about really through two different philosophical problems of concern. So one we could call the, the problem of agency, and the other is something like the problem of harm. So the problem of agency asks 
when is an action attributable to me as an exercise of my agency? Um, so we know there are cases when something doesn't count as that kind of an action. It's just mere behavior. So I was at the doctor's office today and he, you know, knocked my knee and then my knee sort of kicked out in front of me just by pure reflex. Um, so if I had kicked the doctor um, when that happened, that would not be attributable to me as something that I did. You know, it was just a sheer reflex. Um, and we can think of lots of other examples. So when you do something by accident or under coercion or in an altered state of mind, those things don't really count as attributable actions that reflect on you as an agent. So here we're normally thinking about sort of metaphysical and psychological conditions for responsibility. Accountability, I think, comes through, we arrive at that concept through a totally different set of concerns. Um, so there, what we're concerned is when, when something bad has happened, what is a fair and just way of distributing the burdens of repairing that harm? Um, and so it's important to note that this can happen even when there's no agency involved at all. So if there's just a, a hurricane or a flood or some other natural disaster, a lot of people get harmed. Um, nobody's to blame for that, but we still have to decide who's going to you know, pick up the costs of taking care of these people that have been harmed. Um, so here what we're looking at is more social political conditions. Um, so what's the right way to sort of distribute these things? And so the point, which I think is interesting and helpful for the kinds of cases we're looking at, is that we can be accountable for harm in the sense that it's appropriate for us to be assigned some of those burdens of addressing that harm, even when it doesn't result from something that is attributable to us. So even if there was something that we didn't cause or that um, you can't blame us for it, it might still be appropriate for us to be required to uh, contribute to helping to address it. This is The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. My guest this week is Robin Zhang from Yale NUS College in Singapore. And we're talking about individual responsibility for structural injustice. Into this discussion, you're introducing something that you call the role ideal model, and we'll get to what that is in a minute, but it's based on the idea that we're each responsible for structural injustice by virtue of our social roles. What do you mean exactly by social roles and why are they important here? Mm -hmm. I think that social roles are really important because there's a sort of long tradition um, in sociology, social theory, that thinks of social roles as the place where structures meet agency. So getting back to your earlier concern about, well, if you just say social structures, isn't that just appealing to some thing out there and you know nobody's really responsible? Well, a social role, I think, is something that makes sense of the way that a social structure can be something that's out there in the world, and yet it is also something that is produced by me as an individual and my choices as an agent. So to explain it simply, um, a social role for me is a kind of bundle of expectations that people have of one another. So each role gets made up of these pairs of relationships that are defined in terms of the kinds of behavior that are intelligent and appropriate. 
for uh, those relationships. So to give you an example of, um, you know, a teacher, uh, the social role of a teacher, there's going to be a certain way that teachers and students behave towards one another, and then teachers and the parents of their students, and then, you know, the teacher and the principal of the school and, and so on and so forth. Um, but so to take the, the teacher-student relationship, it makes sense for the teacher to be the one who stands in front of the room or uh, on the Zoom screen, as it might be now, um, and talks for some time and then gives instructions. And then it makes sense for the student to be the one who you know, raises their hand and asks questions of the teacher and not the other way around. So anyone who stands in this particular kind of relationship, so any two people who have that kind of relationship with one another, they would occupy the social role of teacher and student. And they're sort of subject to the expectations that, you know, the teacher should be acting in this way and the student should be acting this way. Um, so on my view, a social structure is made up of all of these combinations of, role, of, of roles. So teachers, students, parents, citizens, neighbors, uh, man, woman, all of these are social roles. And they all sort of fit together in a way that we all sort of know what's expected of our role. And we also expect others to behave in their role. And that's what gets us this big system, which kind of maintains itself in the way that we were just talking about. What really interests me here is the point you make that our our roles or our performances of, of those roles don't just contribute to unjust social processes. They they sort of constitute them in a way. And, you know, this is something that we all do. You know, none of us, I, I guess, can escape this. Can you give me an example of a social role that maybe you yourself occupy, which in some way perpetuates or could perpetuate or constitute structural injustice? Yeah, yeah. As you said, we all do this. And so it's actually very easy to think of an example. So just um, I am a, a university uh, professor. And so that actually is a role in which just by carrying out my job, I do perpetuate structural injustices uh, of a sort. So I teach at a highly selective elite institution. Um, and so all of this knowledge and the credentials that I'm giving to my students that's going to allow them to get, you know, very high paying and prestigious jobs, while people who didn't have access to the school would not get those. I also hand out these grades, and sometimes I have to do it on a bit of a curve. Um, and so that's sort of perpetuating the idea that, um, you know, only a small number of students are very high performing or talented, when in reality, there might be more of them who performed very well. Or even the curriculum that I teach, um, it may not be uh, very representative of all of the, uh, you know, philosophical traditions around the world. It, it you know, it still tends to be focused on a small, uh, narrow, Eurocentric conception of philosophy. So, in all of those ways, just by carrying out that job, I am also perpetuating structural injustice. I'm, I'm sort of making philosophy and the world into a place where there are these uh, hierarchies and inequalities. Yeah, that one really hits home for me as well. (laughs) But um, of course, social roles can offer a solution as well as being part of the problem. And this is where the role ideal model comes in. Uh, Tell me about that. 
Yeah. So as you said, uh, a really important part about social roles, just like social structures, is that even though they they constrain us, you know, I'm, I'm not allowed to do certain things as a university professor, they also enable us to do certain things. So people have talked about social roles as providing resources. Um, so as a university professor, um, you know, I am entitled to use the library and access all of these amazing uh, studies and things that can help me teach things to students who, you know, I have the authority to give them this information. Um, I can write to my dean or my president about concerns about my classroom. All of these things are are things that I can do in virtue of my role. It gives me these sort of powers and and privileges. So what that means, and and this is true of all uh, social roles, is that there's some room here to do things differently and to eventually have an effect on on the system as a whole. So what's interesting about a social role is that we all sort of have the same shared expectations in general of how um, they require us to act, but everybody has different conceptions of exactly how to do that and how to how to perform the role really well. So if you think about this role of professor, um, my colleague and I may have different ideas about what it means to be a good professor. And, you know, you probably know, you know, different professors have different ways of doing things. Every student has um, experienced that. And so that's what I call a a role ideal is this particular conception that an individual has of what it means to perform that role well. And so I think that this is one way that we can think of social change coming about at the at the level of the whole system is that each of us has the ability to do what I call uh, boundary pushing. Um, So pushing the boundaries of our role. So I'll I'll give you a a recent example. Um, This year at my institution, it was discovered that the head of our governing board um, owns investments that were providing rent to the uh, Burmese military. Um, So students were very concerned about this when they found out. And so they uh, started a petition. They demanded that the school um, and that the the governing board had, you know, divest in these investments so that they wouldn't be supporting the Burmese military and all the horrible, you know, murders that the military was uh, was committing. Um, And then we as faculty members, we... uh, took up these concerns of the students and we had a discussion um, and we tried to talk about things that the institution could do to address the the problem of uh, the Burmese military. And so all of these things were, you know, they were intelligible and appropriate for us to do um, given our roles as students and faculty who attend this institution or who work at this institution. But this wasn't the usual way to perform the role, right? It wasn't just like writing papers or whatever. It's not the usual way for uh, students and faculty to um, be concerned with sort of university finances. Um, But it made sense for us to do so, given those roles. Um, So that, I think, is an example of boundary pushing, which shows how, you know, there's plenty of these other examples, divestment and and many other types of um, initiatives where people use their social roles to bring about some more positive change that can stop a, a sort of harmful process from happening. But is there any place here for some sense of individual liability, even for something like guilt or shame, or, or, or do you see that as 
always being counterproductive? Because I know that there are some ethicists who see shame as a potentially useful catalyst or a spur to action. Not not shame in the sense of shaming people on social media, but more more like a self-directed sense of shame, a, a private sense, if you like. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't want to do away with them completely. So I already mentioned that there are certain domains in life um, of these, you know, ordinary cases of morality and immorality where I think guilt and shame could be totally appropriate. I do also think that in some cases, um, there's evidence that suggests that at the collective level or at the high level, when we're talking about very powerful agents, blame um, and pinpointing a specific decision maker who has the power to change something, that can be very effective for mobilizing collective action and then pressuring that decision maker to actually make the right decision. So I definitely think that there there still is use for these concepts. Um, It's just a matter of, you know, where and when. And again, I think sort of uh, picking your battles. So just finally, Robin, what do you think about or how do you deal with the pushback against the discourse of structural injustice that we're seeing coming from the, you might call it the conservative end of town. I mean, in some ways, I think these people aren't conservative at all. But, you know, the the, the Fox News, the, the people who are quite willfully construing any talk about structural injustice as virtue signaling or guilt tripping, this kind of thing. And, and and saying, of course, you know, if you want to talk about critical race theory, you must be saying that I personally am a racist. This, and I think there's a lot of bad faith out there in the discourse. But do you mean, how do you, how do you sort of meet that kind of argument? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one thing which is important is at least up to a point to take the critique seriously as an opportunity for reflection Um, So one thing that I learned um, myself, for instance, after the election of um, President Trump was that there were a lot of things that I didn't know about people who voted for him and the way that they see the world and the way that they view um, people like myself. So um, middle class professionals, let's just say. And so I learned a lot about the other side and the kind of legitimate grievances that they have against the ways that people like me, you know, benefit from the system. And so there, there is room for some of that, I think, is um, to, to take it seriously and also to, again, sort of up to a point to think about the extent to which there is some common ground here. Um, so, you know, when you're when you're actually getting ready to engage, um, what could be a legitimate grievance that um, could be motivating some of this that you can actually acknowledge? Um, and that, I think, is important because if you believe, as I do, that we all have this shared responsibility and that at the end of the day, we need collective action to bring about change. You can't just sort of give up on people and, and write them off and say, well, you know, they're they should just be. Uh, deleted from my friend list and and swept aside and and given up as, um, you know, a lost cause. Um, So it is, um, I mean, I think it is uh, my job to try and work with others and, you know, kind of organize them into the movement, as it were. That's how um, an organizer might, might put it. But as you said, there are many cases where after a certain point, it becomes clear that this is just bad faith or that this is just not going to be productive. Um, And then I think the thing to do, as people sometimes say, is just to sort of organize around them 
Um, so not to engage in sort of a back and forth that is going to get nowhere and is just going to frustrate people and get both sides to sort of dig in their heels more, but to um, find other ways to either talk to other people or talk about other things um, such that you get to something more productive and that identifies something uh, forward-looking that everyone can can actually agree on and, and work towards. Yeah, well, I I wish you, I, I wish all of us um, the best in those efforts. It's, <laughs> it's not easy. Not I'm not easy. saying it's easy to do. Yeah, <laughs> no. yeah, that's that's what I tried to do. And I think we, you know, should try to do it. But of course, um, in any given case, uh, it, it can be very, very difficult to actually achieve. Well, Robin Jung, it's been great to talk to you. And thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you so much, David. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And Robin Jung is an assistant professor in philosophy at Yale NUS College in Singapore. She has an excellent website where you can have a look at some of her work. We'll put a link on the Philosopher's Zone website. And don't forget, you can find us via the ABC Listen app where you can subscribe to the Philosopher's Zone podcast. I'm David Rutledge on Twitter at David P Zone. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>